Hi, everyone. This is Joe Bianco, co-host of the Defining Moments podcast. We're now more than two years into the COVID-19 pandemic, and it has affected every corner of the globe. From widespread loss of human lives to ongoing social disruption, no one has emerged unscathed. Although frontline healthcare providers have been recognized and rightfully celebrated throughout the pandemic, the public health workforce has not always enjoyed the same attention or reception. Today's guest is here to help us correct that. I'm very excited today to introduce a good friend and colleague, Dr. Gillian Ice. Gillian is a professor of social medicine at The Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, and she directs the Global Health Initiative and Masters of Global Health Program. Gillian's research explores stress, aging, and health in low-income settings, and her scholarship includes two books related to field research, over 40 articles published in peer-reviewed journals, numerous book chapters, conference presentations, and many, many grants. Gillian currently serves as a special assistant to the president for public health operations at Ohio University. In this role, she oversees the university's response to the COVID-19 pandemic, and she coordinates public health initiatives with the community. She is also a phenomenal cook and baker, and she readily shares leftovers with her more culinarily challenged neighbors like me. So Gillian is here today to talk about the process of building and overseeing the university's COVID response team, and she'll share how the pandemic has affected the health and well-being of our public health workforce. Gillian Ice, it is an honor to have you with us today. Thank you for having me. Well, I can't believe you were able to make the time given your busy job, so thank you. Glad to be here. Good. Well, before we get into your current role, because you haven't always been at the helm of the um, COVID operations at Ohio University, can we kind of talk about your background, tell listeners about your research and scholarship before this? Sure. So um, my general area of research has been looking at stress and aging and how that influences um, overall well-being and um, health of, of older people. Uh, the bulk of my research career is really focused on looking at individuals in uh, low and middle income countries, specifically sub-Saharan Africa, in the context of HIV, where uh, a number of older adults were caring for children who are orphaned due to the HIV pandemic. Um, it, that work sort of uh, shifted a bit in the last um, several years, looking at sort of assisting people in uh, a number of sub-Saharan African countries with um, developing research methods and doing secondary data analysis. So even the topical areas that that I worked on was were more focused on what um, our partners were interested in rather than my own sort of research agenda. Um, but in addition to um, research, we've been I've been working um, for over ten years in uh, global health. Um, for the university as well. So facilitating students and faculty who wanted to have international experiences and international partnerships. And uh, we've developed a global health uh, certificate program at the undergrad grad level, as well as a master's program in global health. And I have to say, I count myself lucky because because of you, I was able to join on um, a couple of the 
trips you've made to Botswana. I didn't get to go to Kenya, but I got to go to Botswana and um, work on the programs teaching uh, research methods to public health workers there. And it was a fantastic experience. And clearly you've enjoy a lot of popularity in the countries that you you visit. If I remember correctly, when you were working in Kenya with the Luo for about six years, you later learned that there were about a dozen or so girls born there that were named Dr. Ice. Yeah, that was, it was quite an honor. W one of the, um, I think, special privileges of, of doing field research is the opportunity to connect with people um, who are, you know, you're directly working with uh, for the research project, but the communities in general. So we, in addition to having the opportunity to do research there and, and develop a great partnership with the research institutes in Kenya, we also developed a, a, a small uh, charity where we pro help provide um, uh, water holes as well as um, uh, uniform, school uniforms and other supplies that, that uh, children who were orphaned needed in order to be able to continue in school. So um, it, it was a great opportunity it's, and certainly still keep in touch with a lot of people from the community and look forward to going back uh, at some point. Well, I, I hope that can happen soon. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. So moving on to your current position at OU, you've essentially been the founder and the um, director of the university's public health response to COVID-19. So can you talk a little bit about how this position came about? Yeah, it, you know, I, I've been really fortunate in my career that I've had a lot of uh, serendipity help direct me. And I, I think this is an example of that. Um, I actually was in uh, Ethiopia conducting one of these research training programs uh, when the pandemic was was declared as a global pandemic um, and had some interesting experiences working with um, partners at the university to get some students who we had sent abroad home, um, as well as um, just navigating the pandemic in, in Ethiopia and trying to get home and so forth. Um, but it really came later that um, right afterwards, one of the things that because I teach public health in uh, the medical school and global health for um, undergrad grads across the university, I really just started diving into to researching everything I could find out about the pandemic uh, because it was a, for me, it was a great teaching opportunity. I thought, oh, this will be a case study that we can use for research, uh, for, for teaching moving forward. Um, and then I, really it came about as I was listening to the provost talk about what the plans were for reopening campus eventually in the fall. This was back in the spring of 2020. And I asked, well, why don't we have some public health folks involved in this conversation? And she said, oh, well, if you want to join, let me know. So I did. And um, in addition, I also volunteered to, with the state to help um, a local health department in Warren City to uh, on their pandemic response and just got deeper and deeper through these two volunteer efforts essentially um and uh, with interest and and based on just sort of taking on more and more tasks to get us ready to return in the fall um it 
people were excited about the things that I was suggesting and then asked me to, to take it on, take the leadership role. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember that coming about and a lot of us were cheering behind the scenes because we knew if anyone could sort of handle this, it would be you. Appreciate um, that. Now, there are other positions like yours at universities. Did they sort of derive the same sort of organic way or are, is it all different? You know, I think it's really different. And, it, you know, it's the way that all of this is structured is very different from university to university. Um, we, um, it, many universities took uh, on, just sort of added this responsibility to people in student affairs who may or may not have had a health background. And I feel for those people who really had to uh, figure this out without the background. Um, others leaned on sort of leaders within their um, departments or schools, uh, colleges of public health. Um, and then other universities did sort of look, who do we have who has this expertise? I think that in, I have a group of colleagues at different institutions in the state who we talk, we, we Zoom together, we share emails and plans and texts quite a lot to to get advice. And I would say that my particular position is very different than even those colleagues. Their colleagues uh, tend to be sort of associated with the testing or with um, managing um, contact tracing or something like that. It, very few have taken on the, the everything about COVID kind of role um, that I have. Um, and so it's been a unique opportunity for me to shape what I think a, a comprehensive COVID uh, response should look like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was going to say that the scope of what you do is really large. Um, you're kind of in at the university, the community, you have a large team that uh, you work with. Do you want to talk about who who you've partnered with and also the members of your team who I know work just as hard as you do to protect the university and the community? Yeah, so we, we sort of have, so we have a, a leadership team and then people that work with each um, member of the leadership team. And we, we we have several functions. So one, you know, major function is case management. Very early on when we were trying to plan how we would manage COVID on campus, I thought it was really important for us to provide support to individuals, students and employees who uh, have to stay home because they're isolating or quarantining and understanding that that affects their ability to work, um, work performance. It may affect their ability to get the essential resources um, and certainly for student success that, that, that being having to be away from campus was, could be potentially problematic. So I wanted to make that isolation and quarantine as sort of painless as, as, as possible. Um, and so we decided early on that we were going to have a case management model, and that's what our COVID campus liaisons do. Um, so Javanto Van Hammer, um, he oversees that group of, of uh, individuals, and he's really the case management um, and uh, contact tracing um, team member. We, we didn't start out contact tracing on behalf of the health department, um, but slowly as, as uh, the student cases in particular dominated the, the county uh, case rates, we took on contact tracing as well. 
not only for our community, but for the general Athens community. And so he oversees that. Uh, we also do manage all of the testing uh, and, and like as far as bringing uh, different organizations to here, companies to come here and test to uh, take those data, report them out, um, decide on, you know, connect with the case management and contact tracing team and so forth. Um, and so we have a couple of folks that are that are overseeing that. And then big part of this is communication. And this is something that I didn't anticipate when I first took on the job that I would be in charge of. Um, but it has uh, it became really apparent that we needed someone who could um, address concerns, could help manage, uh, could help do health education, be it social media or other ways to help people understand, you know, where we're going with the pandemic. So um, initially I, I took that on myself and that was overwhelming. And so uh, now we have a, a Meredith Erlewine who takes care of that. Um, and then just is just a lot of administrative pieces that we manage email, uh, endless emails, phone calls, <laughs> data reporting to the state, data reporting to the university and so forth. So we also have uh, an administrative team. And so with that um, sort of leadership infrastructure, we have uh, additional um, employees full and part time. We're up to about 50 individuals that are that are assisting us uh, as far as employee, employees. But we also have quite a big uh, core of volunteers. And um, largely these are students that are looking that need uh, internship placements or some sort of um, independent study or just volunteer hours for their program. And so we have quite a core of, of student volunteers that work with us as well. Yeah, so that, that really does differ from models at other universities in terms of the scope, the size, and sort of the centrality of what you're doing. Yeah, I think it does. But I think it's really helpful because we're able to really directly connect the data folks with the communication and we we if we have a new need to communicate something about the data i can go uh to ani and and ask him to pull some data for me and we can put that out there um and then also based on what we're seeing with that analysis it helps us identify what are the new communication needs or where are we where do we have gaps for case management and and you know, there's just a very nice organic connection of the different elements of what we do uh, informing each other. Right. It sounds like a very coordinated approach where um, other, you know, might otherwise be fragmented in different settings and that wouldn't really serve the purpose well. And you also partner, you mentioned with the the health department and community agencies. Can you talk a bit about um, how you've worked with them? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I, I had come into this a little bit later when the university decided to send everybody home in March. This was in collaboration with the health department. Um, Ken Johnson, chief medical officer, was, was working with them as well as our emergency response team. Um, and so I came into that later and I've often thought I need to go back and, and talk to them about what their perception. I think when I first came in, I was probably viewed as being a little bit pushy, asking <laughs> to, to be engaged a little bit more with contact tracing. And it was a difficult thing because that 
the health department has so much responsibility for data reporting and contact tracing, whatever. I think they were a little bit nervous, um, but I, I think I wormed my way in there and um, in a way that we have really um, grown the partnership pretty dramatically and work very well. And whenever we're in a peak of a surge, you know, I'm firing off texts back and forth with, with different individuals in the health department and vice versa. So that's been really helpful. But I would also say uh, that I neglected to mention that we have a lot of partnerships even on campus. We could not do this without really close collaboration with a number of partners. So student affairs, um, we work with very closely, in particular um, housing and residence life. Um, our ability to manage COVID within the residence halls has been, it's that, that our partnership has been critical to that. So when we identify somebody who's positive, immediately uh, housing reaches out and moves them to isolation or helps facilitate them to go home. Um, and that's really helped keep uh, the, the cases low in residence halls where the risk is higher because people are living together. Um, and certainly we work very closely with university communications and management. We don't do that, the communication on our own. Um, we work closely with the different uh, health colleges as, as well. So really the partnerships have been critical both on and off campus um, for the entire uh, pandemic. Now, it takes a village. It really does. And, and it sounds like everyone's really contributing. Yeah, it's it's been great. I mean, I, I think all of us are stressed in ways, you know, whether it's a faculty member in a classroom that has to manage rolling absences or, um, or somebody in the facilities that has to change the cleaning protocols as the science changes and so forth. We've all been ta taxed with like doing our jobs differently and uh, while managing our own personal uh, challenges with the pandemic. And so I've really appreciated the fact that people have been willing to go the extra mile and partner with us when it's when in their own world uh, for the day-to-day -day work that they have to do, they're pretty stressed out. So it sounds like there are also a lot of unsung heroes behind the scenes making this happen. Absolutely. Let's shift a little bit to um, things like patterns you've noticed maybe over the course of the last year and a half. Um, any patterns in public attitudes toward the pandemic or kind of attitudes toward public health recommendations? Have you seen any sort of uh, shifting tides there? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's been, you know, if I can step back and, and not think about how it affects my individual job or experience, um, just from an academic perspective, it's been fascinating. I've been uh, doing a lot of reading on the side about pandemics in general, about uh, specifically the U.S. response to, to the pandemic here. And I think a lot of what, what we've experienced is um, not unexpected, but still challenging to go through. So one of the things that I think very early on in the pandemic, it did feel very collective. Uh, people were, uh, by and large, I think, teaming together and, and working as a community to try to to you know flatten the curve if you remember everybody talking about that early on in the pandemic um but very early on i think in the united states we are a culture of uh individuals uh, individualism uh, autonomy 
uh, hold values of autonomy and so forth. And so I think it didn't take long for people to get really frustrated with working collectively and uh, and feeling the frustration of how the, the pandemic was affecting them and their families and and uh, you know people the the data have been so available about uh, the research uh, related to the pandemic that uh, which is awesome it's been great the science related to the pandemic has really been uh, fabulous um, with the speed and the communication of it but it means that everyone sort of feels that they can read a few articles and they they are equivalent to Tony Fauci or or you know somebody who's spent a career doing this <laughs> and so it, from a public health perspective I, I think all of us get a little bit uh, frustrated because everybody is, as I say, a Google epidemiologist. But hmm. with that said, I mean, I think what the real patterns are, and they didn't just come about with COVID. I think in general, we have had this continuous cycle of panic and neglect. Um, so when rates are really high, every the anxiety is very high. Everybody is frantically trying to do every prevention measure they can. They get frustrated because there's shortages with tests or shortages with masks or shortages with whatever they need to do to keep themselves safe. And then as we start to, as the rates start to come down, everyone's like, oh, we don't need to do anything. Let's get rid of this. Let's, and then all of a sudden it's like, okay, well, we don't need to invest anymore into the infrastructure because we're past this, this surge. We're good. We can go about our business and move on. It's time to move on. I've heard this refrain from, you know, probably May, 2020. It, we're done with this, that this is over. Um, and then a new, um, uh, a new surge happens because it's a new variant or um, because we let our guard down and uh, then everybody goes back into that panic mode and, and things can't happen fast enough. Um, and I, But I think this also predated the, the pandemic where we've, uh, as a country and locally, invested resources into public health infrastructure and public health um, workforce in, in the midst of a crisis. And then as soon as the crisis starts to pass, we, we pull the plug on all of that. And it leaves us vulnerable to um, future health crises. Yeah, and I think we could all relate to the fact that we're, we're all sick of the pandemic. I'm sure you and, uh, and your team are particularly ready for it to be done. Uh, it doesn't help though when the CDC, like they did in June of, was it June 2021, suddenly relaxed a lot of the measures and mask wearing, um, and then sort of uh, Delta emerged or was emerging and kind of really hit hard in the beginning of September. So I, I could see those tides of everyone wanting it to be done and not um, not wanting this to continue. And then then shifting into expectations of hurry up, rebuild everything we just dismantled and um, take care of us through this next surge. Right. And I, and I think, you know, I think certainly we've all made missteps, including CDC in managing this. Um, at the same time, I think what gets frustrating is when, when folks look at like the CDC decision to say, Hey, if you're vaccinated, you're good. You don't need to wear a mask or, or any step that they they've taken is that 
you know, when you're sitting on the couch watching a game or watching the pandemic unfold, you have, you know, maybe some variables in your head about what's what's driving these decisions. Maybe you looked at the data about masks, or maybe you looked at the forecast and saw that, oh, Delta started hitting in India. We should have predicted that. Um, but you're not looking, most people aren't looking at, at all of the opportunities and constraints that are facing, whether it's the CDC or me, in developing a policy for whoever we need to develop the policy for. Um, and so sometimes we make decisions to um, to compromise um, because of the particular constraints that are there or because you want to bring people along. I think one of the things that, that will be important as we move forward is thinking through risk, having risk mitigation according to risk. So, hmm. you know, wearing masks when transmission is high, but taking them off when it's not, um, I think that's okay. And I think people might be more willing to go along with changing protocols if you truly are responding to, to very local conditions um, in terms of risk. Um, so we can still have this cycle of prevention measures without neglecting the the pandemic itself or the public health infrastructure. You can still have the infrastructure there and respond appropriately to what what knowledge we have in the moment. Well, that, and that makes sense. And it must, though, require a, a shift in the way the public thinks about the pandemic. Um, you know, going shifting from we just can't wait for this phase to be over to sort of treating it like the weather where maybe some days we'll wear an umbrella if it rains or we'll put on gloves if it's cold. Yeah, exactly. In fact, um, one of the things that we uh, recently developed at the federal government, not we as in me, but obviously <laughs> uh, Biden administration put in um, a uh, pandemic forecasting unit, essentially, I forget their official name, but that's exactly what they're looking to do is, and not just with COVID, but really tracking disease overall, so that we can do a forecast that, you know, maybe RSV has elevated to, to a high extent. So maybe you're going to make a decision about wearing a mask or, or sending your kid um, to, you know, a big event where lots, lots of other kids might be spreading germs kind of thing. So I think that's where we do need to get to is, is we're never going to be fully past COVID. COVID's here to stay. Um, we will at some point get to endemic state, stage COVID. But endemic doesn't mean that the disease isn't serious. It doesn't mean that we won't have surges in certain places at certain times doesn't mean that we um, can, that it's not not going to affect people. And so we really do need to think about not getting past COVID, but learning to manage COVID effectively moving forward um, in a way that's responsive to the local conditions. Hi, folks. This is Joe breaking in for just a second. We've been talking to Dr. Gillian Ice, professor of social medicine and special advisor to the president for public health operations at Ohio University.
We've been talking about Gillian's work managing the university's COVID-19 response team and how the pandemic has affected the health and well-being of public health workers. On the Defining Moments Facebook page, we provide links to articles related to this season of Defining Moments. Okay, back to the conversation. Something that supports what you just said about sort of treating COVID as something we can kind of walk alongside with. Um, you know, we've had at least two huge variants um, occupying our attention the last six months. We've had Delta and Omicron. It seems like there's a tendency to think that these variants are actually so significantly different that we need to change our recommendations. But it seems like the public health measures that are recommended are pretty consistent and tried and true, and that they might actually apply beyond just this variant to uh, to future variants. Can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of the things that's been really important for me um, moving, you know, in the position that I'm in is is taking a traditional multi-pronged prevention approach where we, um, you know, that includes all the primary prevention, masking, hand washing, um, distance, avoiding crowds, that kind of thing, um, testing, and then isolation and quarantine. And all of those measures, if you listen to WHO, if you listen to them in 2020, or if you listen to them last week, they're saying the same thing all of the same measures it's an up it's a respiratory uh, disease we know we know that how it spreads it sometimes it spreads um, more efficiently than other times depending on the variant but it's still spreading in the same way so the measures um, the, the measures haven't changed but I think in the moment when everybody's getting very worried because the case rates are so high and they're worried about their personal risk or their family risk all of a sudden it's like, we need this magical solution. Um, instead of going back to the same old boring stuff that we're, we're doing, sometimes it feels like, you know, when, when people are dieting, it's like you want that magic pill to instantly lose 25 pounds instead of just thinking about like, okay, calories in, calories out, and how do I, how do I manage that? It's the same thing with managing the pandemic and man managing your own individual risk is using going back to those same boring measures of masks, distance, uh, avoiding crowds and, and testing uh, when appropriate. Yeah. And maybe there's a element of it where it's really hard to believe that something as big and um, strange and seemingly novel as this pandemic is could actually be effectively treated so simply that we have the answers already for the most part. And then when we use those measures in combination, we really do have a chance of living a relatively normal functional life during it. Right. And, you know, I think one of the challenges is early on when we had the vaccine come out, there was some messaging that came from a variety of different sources, which is unfortunate in terms of um, once you're vaccinated, you're fine you're not going to get COVID. And the vaccines were never created with the outcome of avoiding transmission. They were really designed to prevent hospitalization and death, serious illness. And that's what the outcomes that were measured when they decided on efficacy 
we were really fortunate that early on um, the the variants that were around were also the the vaccine was very effective at preventing transmission. Now with with Delta that that protection declined pretty dramatically with respect to transmission, but not with respect to hospitalization or death. And similarly, Omicron was even more immune invasive in terms of being able to get infected, but is still highly protective, very small change in vaccine efficacy for hospitalization and death. And so, but I think that messaging um, that, oh, you're just fine if you have the vaccine has really hurt us moving forward. Yeah, it's the effects of that still linger. It doesn't help too to see large drawings of the Omicron variant with spikes coming out of the sides and um, right exactly like it kind of highlights the novelty of it but really the public health recommendations are and will remain the same and they're effective exactly exactly so i want to shift a little bit to sort of the experience that you've had your team and also colleagues that you've spoken with in public health you know during the pandemic we have seen a lot of um, attitudes and perceptions about what public health is and the people who work in public health, and a lot of it has been negative. We don't really hear, though, much about the toll that this takes on those of you who are working in public health day in and day out during an active and unpredictable pandemic. In February of 2021, the CDC released a report in which they found that more than half of the people working in different areas of public health reported at least one um, mental health condition. Um, and public health workers also reported actually 10 to 20 times higher rates of post-traumatic stress disorder compared to frontline healthcare professionals. So the pandemic is really taking its toll on the public health workforce, we don't hear a lot about that. And I was wondering if you could help us kind of make sense of the lived experience of those statistics. Yeah, it really is remarkable to look at that. I think we've talked a lot about the um, frontline healthcare workers in hospitals and so forth who, you know, particularly between, say, Delta and Omicron, really had no time to recuperate, um, no downtime whatsoever. Um, and then that's really taken a toll on our healthcare workforce. But I would say it's very similar in um, public health. But perhaps the additional stress is the the public attacks on top of the just sheer workload. So um, I, I think one of the we were talking about this this pattern of neglect and panic, right? And so public health workers are subject to the impact of that in that when we're getting right when surges start people want um, us to act very quickly and as we should of course um, but you have to act very quickly uh, because we've just in a period of neglect maybe we have fewer people working with us um, and so forth and i mean we not necessarily in in the university but just in general um, so you have to ramp up all of a sudden dealing with a whole lot of cases. And then 
once we get to the peak and then we start coming down and people start feeling better, everybody wants to ramp down all of the measures as well. And so you're just in this constant like flux of change, whether it's it's quickly putting in measures, additional measures, additional staff to try to manage high cases. All of a sudden when cases get low, it's like, quick, quick, we want to be done with all of this, get rid of it. And it's just not as simple as of, okay, let's uh, unplug this from the wall and it's over. You have, you have to change protocol, policies, communication, um, whether you're on the, on the uh, beginning of a surge or on the backside of a surge. Um, and we really haven't, you know, there have been a few periods of time where we've had very low case rates um, locally in the, in the state of Ohio and nationally where there's like a, a moment to breathe. Um, and so there, there hasn't been similar to uh, healthcare workers. There just hasn't been a significant period of recovery, I think. Um, and it, because when we're in particularly the Omicron surge, the cases were so high that you can't possibly work enough hours to uh, manage them. And so you don't manage all of them. And, and it's a horrible feeling that you're, you're not getting to everybody as you should. And so there's this also this anxiety about, you, you know, you're not accomplishing your job to the level that you want to accomplish it. And I think that's probably gotten to a, a lot of us as well. Um, and then on top of that, because coming back to, to this idea of like, everybody's a Google epidemiology, every, epidemiologist, everybody has this vision of how public health should occur. Um, and, and they are very public about it, very vocal about criticizing uh, whoever it is in public health about what should or shouldn't be done. Um, this has become, the pandemic has become very politicized. And so people also attack public health professionals because they view them as being on the wrong side of the politics and which is crazy to me that health public health shouldn't be political it, it should be about health and health of a community um so very often individuals particularly those who are spokespersons of whatever entity they work for are subject to a lot of personal attacks as well and so i think that takes the toll and then you know people who are on the front lines of public health. So those, those that are doing the contact tracing and case investigation, um, we, well, we don't see individuals dying in the hospital in, in the, the trauma that's associated with that. We've had some really tough conversations with family members who have lost loved ones. Um, and particularly tragic is when somebody is, has had access to a vaccine and didn't take the vaccine and, and died as a result. And some of the, the stories that the team has, has dealt with has been, have been really hard. Um, so I think there's that, that element as well. It's very emotional. Um, and then, you know, less sort of dramatic emotional, but challenging is that there are a lot of people that are really angry when you call them, um, to, whether it's to remind them that they have to test for, uh, our mitigation strategy or to, to go through the isolation or quarantine protocols, people are angry. They don't want to have to deal with this. They want COVID to be over. Um, 
or they're just, they're anxious. They're worried about their health or they're worried about their family's health. And people who are anxious or angry aren't always the easiest to talk to. And so I think that's, that's another area that's been really challenging uh, for a number of members of my team is just um, having those, those very difficult conversations. And, you know, everybody's frustrated with COVID. I can't imagine anyone is happy with it. Right. So everyone has, but they have different fears and anxieties. Like for some, it's like great anxiety over uh, their personal health or their, their children's health or their grandparents' health. Some people it's, it's great anxiety about the a lost opportunity of college, changing their college career or, um, uh, isolation or, or what have you, we all have different fears and it affects the way that we act and the, the decisions we make. But there's, when you have a very public, public health force or individuals that are responsible for this, all your fears, anxieties, and frustrations with the pandemic, well, you're going to take it out on that person. <laughs> and so I think, um, and we talk a lot about this with my team of like, let's not take this personally. People are frustrated with the, with COVID and you're the voice of COVID right now. So we try not to take it personally. We try to, to be empathetic to that person in that moment and what their challenges are, but it, it, uh, you can't help, but have that, uh, affect you emotionally and and in your mood. Yeah, of course. I mean, you know, we've talked a lot, you and I about, uh, trauma and secondary trauma, vicarious trauma, the phenomenon that you don't have to directly experience a traumatic event, but you can be exposed secondarily. And with repeated exposure, you can develop symptoms of being traumatized. And that could range from just constantly on edge, or it can kind of change your perception of the world, of other people. Um, so you've got sort of like a collision of different traumas because we're all we're all affected by the pandemic and what it means to us personally. A lot of what you described, though, is um, not really visible to the public. We see some of the rhetoric, um, sort of the anti-public health rhetoric on Facebook and social media. We can see things on news channels. But the other parts that you just described about kind of absorbing anger with every single phone call, you know, that you make or hearing stories um, of loss and, and you know, people whose, lo whose lives were lost that could have been prevented is especially hard when you're in a field dedicated to prevention of those things. So it must really take a toll. Yeah, it really is. It, it really is tragic. And I've, and I've heard people um, who are frustrated with the fact that the pandemic is continuing to drag on and they sort of blame those that ha that are not vaccinated. And when you hear about these tragedies, I I've heard people, not in public health, but people say, well, I you know, I've lost all empathy for these people. I, they, you know, they could have prevented this. And it's like, I, I think that's unfortunate because first of all, there's a life lost. There's a family who lost, uh, those loved ones, um, we've seen, you know, parents die and, and young with young children and, and those children are affected. But beyond just that, I mean, it's like, you have to understand that there, there are many reasons why people didn't get vaccinated. Um, and even if 
it, they are prey to the very well-funded misinformation, disinformation campaign. Like, let's think about why that is. Is it, do, do they have the education to really dig through that? Do they have uh, other things going on in their life that uh, prevented them from getting that vaccine? Um, it's it, judging people and pointing fingers isn't going to get us out of this pandemic. And it's certainly not going to save that child who lost the parent um, because of uh, a lack of access to vaccines. So I, I really try to continue to, we continue to try to work to get people vaccinated, but also to, to have empathy for those who made choices that put them in, the, in, in a place that they were at high risk that is really unfortunate. Uh, absolutely. I mean, there are many people who've had historic experiences of um, mistrust or um, bad experiences with the medical community, either um, personally or in their families. It's um, Those things all inform why someone might not want to take a vaccine, and it's understandable. And I've, I've been constantly impressed with how well your team messages around that, um, especially in, in press conferences and live events where you're receiving some of um, those things in real time and having to kind of maintain a more neutral stance while trying to educate. I think your team does a particularly good job of that. Yeah, I appreciate that. That's definitely our goal um, to try to do that. And, and, you know, and I think it's important that you know, when I, I said earlier that when, when we make a decision, somebody makes a decision in public health, it may not be the best solution if you were living in an ideal world. We don't live in an ideal world. And so we make decisions sometimes that aren't ideal, but are the best that we can do under the particular set of circumstances. But I think if we're not effective at explaining what those circumstances are or why we came to the decisions that we made, they do seem arbitrary or they do seem like not well thought out or, or not considering the best science that's out there or the, the next article that somebody happens to read. And so I think it's really important for us to take the time to explain, okay, yes, we should, you know, it would have been great if we could have done X, Y, and Z. We couldn't do X, Y, and Z. Here's why, but here's what we're doing to get us really close to that same outcome. I like that, and I think I think you've managed to keep that sort of measured tone throughout throughout um, all of the different tides of the pandemic. So maybe thinking ahead now, if we not to jinx us or anything, but let's think to that sort of post-pandemic time when maybe COVID's just endemic, we're kind of living alongside it. What do you think we've learned about public health and then the infrastructure necessary to kind of manage everyday life beyond this point that would help us if there is another pandemic in the future? Yeah, I think we've learned a lot of lessons. Hopefully, people internalize them um, beyond where we are in the crisis. Again, it comes back to that that cycle of crisis and neglect. And you know, certainly, universities had no public health infrastructure or or minimal public health infrastructure, disjointed, not coordinated. Um, 
I think that was true of, of most of us. So we weren't able to, it, it took some time and effort to, to be able to respond quickly. Um, some places had better resources than others, but, um, and, and this is true on the national level as well. I mean, we had, we had a pandemic playbook. There were some issues with that playbook, but it kind of got shelved and forgotten about and we didn't act on it. And so what I think this hopefully has taught us all is that we do need to have um, some basic public health infrastructure that's flexible and adaptable uh, so that we can respond in real time to, to crises to prevent them from becoming crises. And public health, you know, public health is working is when you don't see problems. And that's, I think that's one of the reasons why it's challenging for people to fund it because they think we're not doing anything. But if you do it right, you, you avoid these problems. Um, I think making sure that we have at every level uh, enough assessment happening in the community so that we can forecast when there's going to be problems and be able to address that. I think one of the particulars that we're going to have to think about because we've been in this pandemic now, this is our third year, is that there's a whole lot of post-pandemic sequelae that we will it will be a shame to to uh forget about that we you know because of all of this collective and individualized trauma that we've all experienced uh, mental health issues are a real challenge in general in the nation they were going into the pandemic they've been exacerbated study after study have shown whether it's college students high school students or or you know just community adults um and Additionally, a lot of folks um, have have neglected their basic prevention. They they're gaining weight. They're not taking care of their chronic diseases either because they're afraid to go to the doctors or they haven't had time or, or what have you. And so I think we have unfortunately we're leaving the pandemic a less healthy nation than we were before. And there was still a lot to do for public health before we got into the pandemic. So I think moving forward, we've, we've built at many, many different levels, uh, including the university, uh, public health infrastructure that can and should be repurposed to address the, those sequelae as well as just general public health and, and keeping an ear to the ground using that forecasting data that the federal government is putting together to identify when there's a risk of uh, infectious disease becoming an epidemic or a pandemic and, and taking the measures to stop it before we get to the point where we're three years into a crisis. Hmm. I wonder if part of that too could be changing or increasing educational strategies for the public about public health itself and the nature of it. Maybe it's too hard to learn those things and take them in during the uh, sort of heat of the pandemic. But maybe when things cool down and um, the immediate crisis seems to be over, there could be opportunities to train future public health workers and uh, educate the public more on really the value of prevention. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think that's true. I know in, in my role as director of global health, we've, we've worked really hard to get global health content into um, a variety of different disciplines and also draw in people from different disciplines into our courses. 
and one of the visions that I had in developing that strategy was that um, what we, we know in global health is that every aspect of life is touched by health and uh, impacts health. And hopefully the pandemic has driven this home to a lot of people. You know, it, it really affects every aspect of our lives. And so that's why we've taken the approach and I, I will redouble this effort as I go back to, to global health eventually um, with, you know, helping somebody who's in the College of Business understand how um, how, how what they do affects health and is affected by health, how somebody in the arts can look at how uh, they can have an impact on health um, and so forth. I think um, that's one way to understand better the, the impact of, of public health and, and the nature of it is by really having authentic learning experiences that connect it to whatever those students are interested in. I like that. And it sort of gives us a message of hope and possibility for when we get out of this uh, more acute phase, I think. Absolutely. Well, is there anything else, Gillian, that you wanted to share with us today or touch upon? I guess I, I'm i going to echo I, a woman who I've been really admiring through this pandemic. She's um, the technical lead for WHO, Maria Van Kirkhoff. And she always says, we're not going to be in a pandemic forever. We are, we are not going to live in with restrictions as people see public health measures um, as. We will get through this. It does require some collective action right now. It does require that we uh, know the risk in our community and respond appropriately, but we will get to a point where we are no longer in the emergency phase of this pandemic and that we can go back to uh, more normal lives. Um, and so I guess that's that's what I'd like to end with is just there is hope that we're, we, we will move past it. We'll get there, um, but we do need to hang on here a little bit longer. Gillian, thank you and, and your entire team for guiding OU through the pandemic. And thank you very much for being a guest on Defining Moments today. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed this. Me too. Thank you. Thanks for joining Dr. Gillian Ice and I for this episode of the Defining Moments podcast. Defining Moments is produced by WOUB Public Media and the Barbara Geralds Institute for Storytelling and Social Impact. Lynn Harder and I are the co-producers, and Adam Rich is our audio engineer. You can subscribe to Defining Moments at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or the NPR Podcast Directory. Please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at DMPodcastWOUB. On our Facebook page, we provide links to a 2020 article published in Health Communication on COVID-19 and the ethics of communication during the pandemic. We hope you'll take some time to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. Mm-hmm.